Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. How are you coming around? I was giving you the <laughs> Great. That's, no, that's comforting. Uh, I am recovering from a cold. So I've told Lo to stand by because if I have like a coughing spasm, he's just going to come right up and finish my message. No problem. It'll be interesting, huh? <clears throat> All right. Well, hey, um, this is an exciting week. And how many of you love Christmas? It's like your favorite time of the year. All right. And how many of you would say, you know, Christmas is okay, but I'm sort of glad when it gets over. Okay. I'm actually more in that category, believe it or not. But I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about today. And... Um, I want you to think about grand entrances, because Christmas, of course, is a, is a sort of grand entrance. But um, in 2007, the Queen of England came over uh, to visit the United States, and that was a grand entrance. Uh, she wore beautiful clothes and all kinds of jewelry and, of course, her crown. She was surrounded by bodyguards. Uh, she brought 4,000 pounds of luggage she had two outfits for every occasion. She, brought, she even brought a mourning outfit, mourning as in uh, like if somebody died, just, just in case she wanted to have that. They, bought, they brought 40 pints of plasma. Uh, she brought white kid leather toilet seat covers. I always take those with me too. A hairdresser, which I also take, two valets. She went to the nicest places. She was entertained by the greatest celebrities she saw our highest dignitaries, and then she finally went to the White House and had a great time uh, with George Bush at the White House. The, the trip cost tens of millions of dollars, and I think we would all admit that is a grand entrance, man. There's no way that you can miss somebody that enters that way. Well, of course, this week we celebrate really the grandest entrance of all time, Christmas. Uh, it is the most celebrated entrance that has ever occurred. But it's interesting, with so much focus on it and how we come back to it year after year and look at it, uh, there is so much misinformation about it. Really, most of us don't know what that entrance truly looked like. And part of the misinformation comes from things that we do every year, like singing Christmas carols. And I love Christmas carols, but uh, many of those people are not Bible scholars that wrote those things. And so we get a certain message from Christmas carols and Christmas cards that I think sometimes makes us believe that Christmas, the first Christmas, uh, was much more romantic and sentimental than it truly was. We sing things in Christmas carols like it was a silent night and a holy night. And uh, the Lord, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. You remember that line? Well, I'm not sure that where they get that, how that is so accurate. We also hear that angels were singing over the manger, that there was a little drummer boy that showed up going rump, rump pump, pumping, or whatever he was doing. <laughs> it actually says that the animals were keeping time with the drummer boy, and that three kings showed up from the Orient uh, bringing gifts that night. All of those things are not true. Uh, Christmas carols have nativity scenes in it, uh, that usually look like it's like New England or something like that, snow-covered, quaint New England town, trumpets blowing with angels that are chubby and cuddly and 
look kind of like babies with wings on their back. They, you'd never think that they'd have to warn you not to fear, fear not. Farm animals sort of looking in reverence on the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, all with these little halos around their head, looking serene and unrumpled by all the things that have happened. And then you open the cards, and it has sunny words like goodwill and love and warmth and happiness. And you get this picture that it was just, it was the coolest, most sentimental, most wonderful night ever in the history of the world. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible bends over backwards to explain that it was not romantic, it was not sentimental, it was a very, very difficult time. Uh, First, you start off with Mary and Joseph walking 100 miles when Mary was nine months pregnant down to Bethlehem. Women, if you've been pregnant, tell me how that would have gone, how that little trip would have worked out. They arrive as Mary goes into labor. They go to Joseph's family, go to their house, and they're turned away. They say, the guest room is full. You can have your baby out in the animal shelter. And Jesus was born in an animal shelter, probably a cave. He was wrapped up in cloths and put into a dirty feeding trough. I don't know. I always thought a manger was some kind of cradle. It's not. It's a feeding trough. Uh, There were more animal eyes that witnessed Jesus' birth than human eyes. Uh, We do have the story of the angel showing up in a bright, magnificent display, but it's interesting on who they showed to. It was to shepherds out in the field, and we get romantic ideas of the shepherds. The truth of the matter is the shepherds were the bottom rung of society, illiterate hirelings, They were considered godless, not even allowed into the temple because of who they were. And this is who the angels go on display with. We read later that Mary and Joseph were so poor that when they went to the temple to offer sacrifices for their son, which was tradition, they could not afford a lamb and they sacrificed two turtle doves. And truth be known, we don't even know the day that Jesus was born. We celebrate December 25th because early in the 4th century, Roman officials decided they needed to celebrate his birth, and they just decided that they would make it on the winter solace, and so that was December 25th. But the reality is, it went so much under the radar that nobody knows when Jesus was born, what time of the year it was. And when you hear that, you start to understand that rather than a glorious, magnificent, grand entrance that God made into the world 2,000 years ago, it was about as ignoble as it could be. And the reality is, that was totally intentional. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing years later, talking about, from sort of a theological standpoint, Jesus' entrance into the world, he writes these words, He said, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. Then listen to this. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And what Paul reminds us 
is that the way Jesus came into the world was by design. That instead of coming in with the grand entrance, you would expect if God was coming to earth, that he did everything to come in the exact opposite way. And when we read the book of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 today, we recognize that Matthew echoes Paul's sentiments here. Matthew wants to present Jesus not in this holy, awesome, magnificent God that somehow comes to earth and transforms everything. But Matthew bends over backwards to say he flew so low under the radar and he came in such a way that no one would have ever guessed that he was God. So let's look at that. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to actually be looking at the book of Matthew between now and Easter. So we're going to go through the whole book of Matthew. And of course, we're starting with the Christmas story now. And if you look in the book of Matthew, you'll see that Matthew starts with a genealogy. And most of us, when we're reading the Bible, when we come to the genealogy, at least if you're like me, you tend to just skip right over that. A bunch of names that don't make any sense. Let's get to the story. But Matthew is very intentional on putting the genealogy into the story of Jesus coming to earth. And I want to just reflect on a couple of things that Matthew puts in there that really is staggering. It's totally amazing that he includes this in the beginning of the story of Jesus. So it starts off in Matthew 1.1, and it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Now, those two designations, son of David, son of Abraham, were crucial. The Messiah had to come through that line because Abraham meant that he was a Jew, and we know that the Messiah was a Jew. Coming through David meant that he was a king. And we know that the Messiah is a king, comes from the kingly line. And so, so far, so good. Everything's good. Jesus is looking really wonderful at this point. And you start going down through the genealogy. And it's interesting because Matthew edits the genealogy. We're not getting the full genealogy. In other words, he's putting in the names he wants and leaving out other names. He's just giving us sort of a snapshot. But it's very interesting what he includes in his genealogy. Uh, We go from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Judah. Judah, let me just tell you something about Judah. Judah uh, is mostly known for being the brother that sold his brother Joseph into slavery. was sort of a scoundrel in that whole story. And it says here that Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Now, all of a sudden, out of everything that you can tell us about Judah, talking about Tamar was the one thing that Judah would have hated. Let me just very quickly tell you this story. Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And when his son died, uh, she went over to the next son, which was tradition, because she didn't have a child at this point. And then that son died. And Judah lied to her and said that he would take care of the matter, but he didn't. He sort of put her on the shelf. And so she dressed up as a prostitute. Judah's wife had died, and he went on a trip, and he, was, uh, he basically had sex with his daughter-in-law. 
and a baby was born. Now Judah, when he found out, because Tamar had dressed up in disguise, when Judah found out that Tamar was pregnant, he was indignant and judged her. And then she showed him, sort of in a wily kind of a way, you're the one that did this to me. That's the story that Matthew puts in the genealogy, is that in this line comes Perez, and Perez is an illegitimate child, a father to a daughter-in-law. Interesting, huh? And what we learn is that Judah sort of was a creepy guy. And in fact, this story highlights it. And if you're going to give him a name, you might call him Judah the Creep. And that kind of defined him, really, in the Bible story. So we go on. Perez to Hezron, Hezron to Ram, Ram to Abinadab, Abinadab to Nashem, Nashem to Salmon. And then it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. You all know that. Rahab was a prostitute. You know why? Because in every story that Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, she is called Rahab the prostitute. Rahab had a name. Now, she did a really cool thing. She helped the spies out when they were coming into the promised land. But she never shakes that name. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. And imagine that, that in Jesus' line is Rahab the prostitute. She lives with that name. It continues, Salmon to Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, it says, whose mother was Ruth. Maybe you know the story of Ruth. Ruth, again, a very noble character in the Bible. But we also know that Ruth, was she a Jew? She was not a Jew. That's huge in a Jewish bloodline. She was a Moabite. Moabites were godless. Moabites were idolaters. Uh, They were considered uh, corrupt people. And that's who Ruth comes from. And you know what? In the story of Ruth, if you read that story in the Old Testament, she is called Ruth the Moabite throughout the whole story. That is her title. She is a foreigner. She does not belong in the line of the Messiah. And yet Matthew bends over backwards to show that that's part of the genealogy. Then we go from Boaz to Jesse and Jesse to David. And finally, we get a character that is great. David, the king, the the greatest king of Israel, uh, a great soldier, a poet, wrote the Psalms for us and a magnificent guy. And so finally, we get to somebody that you'd be really proud of to have in your family line. But listen to the only thing that Matthew tells us about David. David was the father of Solomon, and listen to this, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The only thing that Matthew points out is that David had had an affair with Bathsheba, and to cover it up, he killed her husband, Uriah. It is what Matthew highlights in the bloodline of Jesus. And so instead of David being the king or David being the psalmist, David is the murderer and adulterer. That's the name that is highlighted in the genealogy. It is an amazing thing that this is the way that Matthew introduces the Messiah. 
with a bloodline that is stained with story after story after story, with name after name after name, that is not noble, is not, are not the kind of people that you'd say, oh, I'm so glad they're in my family history, but are the people that you would never mention, the people that you'd put you know, sort of behind you. If you're going through something, you would not highlight, you know, dirty Grandpa Joe or crazy Aunt Harriet or something. You know, you wouldn't even talk about them. But Matthew brings them out in the bloodline. Now, this is really interesting because we don't get this because our bloodlines, you know, if we have some crazy things in our past, it's not that big of a deal. We're sort of amused with it. But the bloodline for Jews was really important. And for a Messiah, the Messiah was the most important thing. Uh, I was reminded of this. When we were raised, uh, my family, our best friends were Jewish. And they had daughters that were younger than my brother and me. But we were close enough in age that we'd all play together and do things together. And the oldest of their daughters sort of got this crush on me. And, uh, and that was so cool. I thought I was so cool because she did. And she would tell me, and we were young, you know, pretty young. But she would tell me how she was going to marry me when we got older. And then one day she came to me and she was like distraught because she had told her parents she was going to marry me. And they loved our family and they loved me. I know that. And they said, that's not possible. He's not Jewish. You will not marry. And I remember thinking that is so weird that you wouldn't allow someone to marry just because they were not of the same you know, background as you, as the same race, same religion. But in the Jewish bloodline, that was just critically important. And here what we see is that Matthew, instead of hiding the bad things, he actually highlights the problems in the bloodline of the Messiah. So that sets up the very first story that you read about in the book of Matthew, the first story about Jesus. So we get this genealogy and it sort of casts a shadow over Jesus. But then you think, well, the stories are going to be great. The stories are going to make Jesus look wonderful. And we get to the first story. So turn down, and now that you get through the genealogy, let's read the first story of what happens with the birth of Jesus. Uh, Let's see, we're skipping down to verse 18. Why don't you read this with me? It says this, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, and we'll finish it in a second, well, this is not a happy, wonderful, raise Jesus up kind of story. This is like a soap opera story. Mary, who was probably a young teenager at the time, all of a sudden becomes pregnant. And then she comes up with this amazing story that God did this to her. And just imagine how that would go over. Imagine if you were her parents Imagine if you were Joseph or people in the village of Nazareth. Imagine how you would think about that. Your opinion would either be Mary is lying or Mary is crazy. No one gets pregnant straight from God. And here's the most amazing thing. 
is that uh, before she's pregnant, an angel shows up and tells her, this is the way it's going to go down. You're going to be pregnant and unmarried. And Mary says, I'll go with it. Mary says, I'll do it. Mary doesn't reluctantly do it. She actually says, I want to be part of this. And when you think about this for a second, because these thoughts were going through Mary's mind, how is she going to explain this? What are people going to think? What will this do to her reputation? And instead of pulling back, she says, if this is the way God wants to do it, I'm all in. And she sacrifices her reputation. She allows herself to be called an adulterer, or maybe even worse names than that, to go along with the plan that God has for her. It's really an amazing story of how Mary goes along with this. So she turns up and talks to Joseph, and Joseph doesn't believe her. And it's kind of interesting to see how uh, Joseph reacts to this. Now, they were betrothed. That means that they were engaged. But engagement back in those days was more serious than engagement in these days. You really were considered married. You just didn't live together. You didn't have sex, and you weren't ever able to be alone together. So you had all the commitments of marriage, probably with none of the fringe benefits. And that's sort of how it went. And usually it was about a year long, that betrothal period. And it's during the betrothal that this comes up. And so uh, to break a betrothal actually meant going through a divorce. There was no just getting ticked at somebody and throwing the ring at them and saying, I'm done with you. That's not how it went in those days. You actually had to go through a divorce proceeding if you were going to break a betrothal. And so here's what we read about Joseph. Joseph's reaction is bitter disappointment. Now, you look at the story and you go, well, it doesn't seem like he was bitterly disappointed. But right at the end of the section that we read, it said that he considered this. That is a really weird thing to think about. Just think about this. All right, so you're, you're engaged to a woman that you love. She's all of a sudden, it appears, had an affair and is pregnant. Let me just tell you, would you sit back and say, well, let me consider this? No, you would be angry. And it's funny because the translation of this word is always considered this. The real translation is that he became angry. And I think uh, sometimes uh, commentators or translators just feel uncomfortable putting Joseph as angry in this position. But it's actually the very same word that is used describing when Herod found out that he had been tricked by the Magi and that they went home on a different route, and it says he became furious. That's the exact same word that is used here. Joseph was angry, like anyone would be. But we learn something about his character right away. Because instead of making a big demonstration about Mary being pregnant, instead of exposing her to more shame, it says that he quietly divorced her. Now you'd think, well, that's kind of good. He's a noble guy. But it really even goes beyond that. Because just picture this. Okay, all of a sudden... Mary's pregnant, and they're not married. Everybody knows that. And then Joseph, quietly, with nobody knowing, is going to divorce her and leave her. So what are people going to think? They're probably going to think, Joseph is the father, and he's got cold feet. And that poor teenage girl, he's just leaving her, pregnant. In other words, he was putting his reputation in jeopardy 
by handling the situation this way. And so this is where the uh, angel shows up. And so let's read this together, Matthew 1, 20 through 21. I'm going to take a drink of water, and you guys are going to read this. An angel... So the angel comes to Joseph, and he says, this is not a mistake. This is not Mary's fault. I need you to go along with this. Do you know how important it was that Joseph went along with it? The line, the genealogy that I read at the beginning from Matthew does not come through Mary. It comes through Joseph. Joseph had to take Jesus as his son for the prophecies to be fulfilled. But it's so interesting. Because the angel, because God gives Joseph the choice. Will you go through with this? Even though this damages your reputation, will you go through it? Even though through this, Joseph, people will either think that you're a fool for marrying someone who cheated on you, or they'll think that you were a fornicator that had sex with a woman that wasn't married, wasn't your wife yet. But I need you to go through with this. And Joseph says yes. He says, I'll do it. Even though this is going to create great hardship for me, I will go through with it. And so Joseph takes Mary as his wife. And now we understand maybe a couple of things that are sort of hard to understand. Why Joseph took Mary with him to Bethlehem, she did not need to go. There was no rules that said that the wife or the betrothed had to go. Joseph had to go for the census. Mary didn't. But I'm sure he looked at the situation and he said, I'm not leaving Mary in Nazareth with all of these people saying the things that they're saying about her. She'll go with me. It also explains why in a uh, culture that is known for hospitality, as Joseph goes to his hometown, to his family, and a pregnant woman shows up and they won't let her in the house. It wasn't just because there was no room and Uncle Fred got there first and so he's taking the bedroom. It was because they said, listen, you guys have totally shamed the family by what you've done. She can have the baby out back with the animals. You start to understand what was happening during this time. And all of this is going exactly according to God's plan. That's what's amazing. This is God's plan. And just quickly, just so that you know that Jesus did not get out of this unscathed, What do you call a child that is born out of wedlock? Called a bastard, right? That's the English word we have for that. The Jewish word is masmer. Jesus was considered a masmer. He was considered a bastard. And it's so interesting because that name stuck with him throughout his whole ministry. And you don't really think about it, but let me just show you a couple of examples where people throw that bar back at Jesus, where they question who his father is. Uh, In Mark chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Jesus is referred to as Mary's son. Now, we don't think anything about that. But in that culture, a son was never considered the mother's son. It was always the father's son. 
It is a uh, paternalistic society. The father is the head of uh, the family unit. The only reason he would be called Mary's son is if there was suspicion about the father. It was because he was considered a masmer. And because of that, they throw that in as a jab to Jesus. Right at the end of his ministry, he's having a debate with the religious leaders, and it's fairly heated. And they're talking about lineage and whose father is who and so forth. And finally, the Pharisees sort of bark out at Jesus, we are not illegitimate children. This happens in John 8, verses 39 through 41. We are not illegitimate children. And the way that the sentence structure works, what they're saying is, we're not, and you are. So all the way through Jesus' ministry, this word, masmer, followed him around. He chose to be born in such a way that his reputation throughout his life would be called into question, that his name would be shamed through this whole thing. And so the huge question is, why? Why would God come to earth this way? Why would Mary and Joseph suffer in the way that they suffered? Why would Jesus come with a reputation that was unfairly given to him? Why would that happen? And the answer really, I think, is tucked in this. Because it explains the meaning of Christmas. Let me explain why. If you're an alcoholic and you go to an AA meeting and you stand up and tell your story, and you might be nervous because it's the first time you've told it, and you, maybe you're filled with sort of shame and guilt about that, the most amazing thing happens in that community. It's not because there's a whole bunch of wisdom in the room necessarily. It's not because there's all these noble characters that are going to model the way for you necessarily. The reason that AA works is because when you sit down, no matter who you sit next to, they can whisper to you and say, me too. Me too. Those are two of the most powerful words in the English language. Me too. And you know it. If you've ever been ashamed by a mistake you've made in your past, and talk to somebody, and after you told your story, they said, me too. If you've ever had a habit you couldn't kick, and you're so embarrassed, guilt-ridden over it, and you share it with somebody, and they say, me too. If you've ever been an outcast or left out, and you share that with somebody, they say, me too you'll know what kind of power there is in us. You'll know as humans that when we're frail, when we don't match up, when we are embarrassed or feel guilty or shamed by our past, what we long to hear is not somebody to fix our problem, 
not somebody to show us how to do it the right way. It's just that somebody would say, me too. Somebody would identify with us in that way. Do you know why Jesus came this way? So that no matter the problem that we face, no matter the junk from our past, no matter how miserable we feel about something that's happened or something that we've done, that Jesus would look at us and say, me too, me too, I've been there. I know what that feels like. I know what it is to be outcast. I know what it is to be misunderstood. I know what it is not to meet up to expectations. I know what it is for people to look at me in a certain way. I know what it is to have a name. And Matthew wants to make sure we know this as he opens up his his, uh, gospel. As he tells the story of Jesus, the first thing you need to know about Jesus is that Jesus says, me too. And it brings really to me a whole different meaning or a deeper meaning maybe to how this story closes. In Matthew 1, 22 and 23, says these words. Read this with me. All this... Okay, you didn't do as well on that. We had sort of a round going. You guys were first and you guys followed, but you guys get the message. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. I've always read that as sort of a theological understanding, and it is theological. I mean, God, Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. The Holy Spirit impregnating Mary makes that a necessity. It's necessary that Jesus was virgin born if he's truly going to be God with us, 100% God, 100% human. But see, the story of Matthew says, God with us, because Jesus says, me too. Me too. I can relate. I know what you're feeling. I can totally identify with you. And I just want to ask you, as you go into Christmas this year, as you meditate on these thoughts, is there something that you need to know about your life where Jesus comes along and says, me too, me too. You kept this hidden. You have felt ashamed. You wish it could be undone. You don't think anyone would understand. It's a secret in your life. And what you need to know is that Christmas tells us that Jesus comes to you in whatever you're dealing with, and he says, me too. I'm with you. You can't shock me. You can't make me turn away from you. You can't make me misunderstand you. I'm with you. I am with you, Emmanuel. And I want to share one last thing because this is the coolest part of it. He doesn't just leave us there by identifying, which would be a great gift in and of itself. But the reality is he transforms us. He changes our name. And so let me just ask you this question. When you think of Joseph, Jesus' father, right now, when you think about him, you think about his character, you think about his personality, if you were given, to give him a name, would you give him the name fool or adulterer? No, of course not. 
Because as Jesus' story plays out, it becomes obvious that Joseph was a magnificent man, noble, righteous, a man full of grace. Joseph doesn't go down into history as a scoundrel. He goes down in history as a man of honor. Think about Mary. When you think of Mary, do you think of Mary the slut? Mary the adulterer? No. You think of Mary as one of the most honored women in all of history, maybe the most honored woman of all time, a woman full of faith. And it's because as Jesus' story plays out, it becomes clear who Mary really is, and Mary's name is changed. Her identity is changed. And that's true of you. Your identity is changed when you come to Jesus. He has a way of changing our name. And whatever name you've put into your mind, whatever name you've thought you are, that's not the name that Jesus leaves you with. Earlier this week, we were sitting in Kenton's office, and a bunch of us were thinking about this message. And at one point, uh, we started talking about the names we feel like we've had in our life, the things that we're not proud of, the, the things we wish we could eliminate. People went around the room and shared various things, and it didn't get to me, which I was sort of glad about. But I thought I'd share with you, you know, if, you, if I was to share with you my story and kind of how I felt growing up, um, I don't know why I did it, but I chose friends that were way smarter than me. And so I was a jock. And when I was around them, I always felt like the dumb jock. And they would make fun of me, things that I didn't know, you know, things I couldn't quite get. They'd make jokes that I, didn't quite, I wasn't quite in on. And I sort of went away from that, always thinking, you know, I'm just not that intelligent. I just, I'm not going to amount to much. I always felt that way around them. And if I was to give myself a name, I'd say, you know, I'm sort of Kevin the Stupid. You know, I just don't quite match up. But you know, Jesus comes to me and he says, Kevin, I've uniquely gifted you. No mistake. You have the exact intelligence that I want you to have. And I can use you. I can use you. And Jesus changes my name. And I go from Kevin the stupid to Kevin the useful to Kevin the one that can be used. How about you? Maybe there's a spectacular sin in your background, something that really derailed you. And you think of yourself and you look in the mirror and you say, shame, guilt, unworthy. Jesus looks at you and he says, you are forgiven. You are adored. You are set free from that. I will transform your name. Maybe you're someone that was the outcast, the one who never fit in, the one who was rejected, the one that the kids teased. That was your name, the outcast. And yet Jesus looks at you and he says, you're invited. You're more than invited. You're adopted. You're part of my family. You are a friend of God. And he changes your name. He transforms your character. Maybe you always thought you were the burden. 
You're the one that's the nuisance. You're the one that makes things hard on other people. You're the challenge. And Jesus looks at you and he says, you're accepted. You're valued. I want you. Jesus transforms us. And now we start to get the full meaning of Christmas. Jesus comes in the way he comes, not in specter, not in some amazing way that makes it clear that he's God and we're not. He comes in a way that says, listen, what you need to know is I identify with you. I say me too, and I transform you, and you become a different person, and that's the invitation of Christmas. And so now we're going to go in. We wanted to close our time with a time of communion where we just adore Jesus for what he's done. But I want to ask you these questions uh, as we get ready for communion. I want to ask you these questions. Jesus accepts you. Have you accepted him? This Christmas, as we celebrate all these wonderful things about Jesus the baby coming, lying in the manger, Do you accept the gift that he comes to bring you? Do you say, Jesus, you're going to be my savior. You're going to be my Lord. You're going to be my friend. I'm going to change my life around. I'm going to accept what you did at the end of your life when you died for me. If you've been wrestling with issues in your character, wrestling with reputation issues, Are you going to lean on Jesus and understand that he identifies with you? He says, me too. Are you going to take solace in that? Then are you going to allow him to transform you, to change you from the inside out, to change your name? I'll tell you the coolest thing. That thing that Paul wrote about Jesus of how He went from being God to being nothing. Let me just tell you how that passage ends up. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, speaking about Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every other name. See, we worship a God who started as Masmer, And as God transformed that situation to the name above all names. We're going to pass the communion elements. And as we do, John is going to sing a song for us just to reflect on, to reflect on these truths. Where do you stand with Jesus? What does Christmas mean to you? What business do you need to do with him now? Hold the elements and then we'll take the elements together uh, at the conclusion of the song. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.